As we begin the seventh week tonight, uh, we remember that we are in the midst of a giant story. A giant story that is first and foremost about God. I'm looking forward to tonight. I don't know if you will be after it's over. Wait, that doesn't make sense. But one of the one of the neat things is I think when we get into the stories of the, especially the divided kingdom, but much of the story of Israel, the main characters are often uh, the kings, good, bad, really bad, very, very bad, take one of each, or they're the prophets, but tonight we're going to look that the main character these authors are going to make very clear the main character is God. And it's going to kind of remind us that actually while we were thinking, while we were, while we were thinking that the, those other people were main characters in the previous chapters, we're going to find that even then God's going to remind us he's still the main character. God's still the main character uh, in this because uh, we have a God who the Bible tells the story of God's interactions with people. That uh, God, uh, from the beginning, desired to be in relationship with you and me. And with people, and now the overflow of the nature that is His in the divine Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that live forever in relationship, it overflows into creation. And uh, we were created, man and woman, created in God's image. And though we broke that connection through sin and disobedience, the rest of the Bible, from chapter 4 of Genesis to the end of Revelation, is the glorious story of how God intends to bring us back to Him. Not just to bring us back to him, but also to bring the whole world back to him. And does that by calling communities, by forming communities. First, a family. The descendants of Abram, created as Israel. People delivered from slavery, brought to the promised land. Ruled first by judges, who said weren't people who wore robes and powdered wigs, but were more like desert warlords and military leaders. Then they got a king. They had a king named Saul, then a king named David, then a king named Solomon, and then it split into two kingdoms. And there were substantial problems, right? Well, the two errors were what? That One, that they worshipped other gods. And two, they exploited the poor. You remember that? And, what kind of, and then who did God send when they were in the midst of that to remind them of what they have done? What? But who did, what people did, did God send to, to, to instruct and to correct? What do we call them? Prophets. The prophets. There we go. See, a good answer can only come from a good question. And so I'm sorry, that wasn't a good question for me uh, to give you. But, but, as, but yeah, but, uh, uh, but, but then Eluan was right. Then, then Assyria comes and the ten northern tribes are carried off into captivity. You have a map there tonight. I thought... I thought we'd, we'd show a map of what happened with captivity and exile, and they were taken north and then east into a place called Assyria. And the southern kingdom, they, they kind of avoided Assyria. They avoided being taken at that time. Uh, and, and so they thought things were okay. They had, the, they had the temple in the right place. They were saying the right words. They, were, um, they had the right family living in the palace, right? But they thought everything's going to be fine. But what were their problems? Money. They were worshiping other gods, and they were abusing the poor. Did we see a pattern here? <laughs> same, old, same, old. <laughs> same old, same old. And so Syria doesn't get them, but one rise is even more powerful, and they're Babylon. And they come in 605, and then in 597, and then 587, 586, uh, multiple ex deportations. And then finally in 587, 586, uh, they breach the walls, tear the walls down, burn the city, and tear down the temple. And that's where we begin tonight. The temple is in ruins. All the leaders are gone. They have been marched through the desert to a strange place called Babylon. And that might well have been the end of the story. Indeed, we know for the northern ten tribes that was the end of the story, wasn't it? But what we learn here tonight, what we're going to see tonight, is a God who absolutely refuses to give up on people. 
is a God who is at always at work. And so we're going to we're actually going to begin tonight uh, looking at the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is just one two pages. Um, I didn't mark it, so so the chance I find Obadiah is very slim. It's between Amos and Jonah. It's on page eleven hundred and three of my Bible. That helps none of you, um, except is Shirley here. Shirley, that helps Shirley. It's on eleven hundred. She didn't bring the same. Uh, th- th- there we go. <laughs> There. <laughs> there we go. Well, Shirley, uh, Shirley, even Shirley, I can't, I, I can't help tonight. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's, uh, uh, so Obadiah, by the way, I promised you last week these would be some of the strangest readings of the entire Old Testament. Was I wrong? Some of you are like, no, I didn't read. Uh, it was difficult. But, but those of you who read, you, they're, they're weird. There's some weird readings here. Uh, Obadiah is really interesting. We're going to begin with Obadiah. Obadiah is a vision that is seen in the years right after destruction. Uh, Obadiah um, consists primarily of a vision against Edom. Edom. Uh, You'll see Edom on your map. Just look at Jerusalem. Israel, Judah, look south. Edom. You view you, we've heard of Edom already here in the Old Testament. Is that Esau's group? That's Esau's group. Yeah, Shirley. Shirley is on it. Good job. Thank you, Shirley. That's Esau's family. And Israel, whose family is that? Jacob, Jacob right? Remember Jacob? Uh, what does God, God changes Jacob's name? Jacob is heel grabber. What does he change the name to? Israel. Okay. And so this is about Israel and Edom. So this is a uh, family rivalry that goes way, way back. And by way, way back, I, I mean like 1,200 years. Even the Hatfields and McCoys, I think, only lasted 30. No, it's still going on. Still going on? <laughs> um, I mean... 1,200 years. Can you imagine holding a grudge for 1,200 years? Uh, So what happens is Babylon enters in the late 7th century B.C. And when they come, Edom is their neighbor. And so what does Edom do? Does Edom join with their relatives, Judah, to defend against Babylon? No. Instead, they betray Judah. They join up forces with Babylon and help destroy them. Obadiah reminds him that God is not pleased with this. That Edom, uh, that Edom turned against their brothers and uh, God will, will triumph. That God will judge all the nations. For it says in verse 16, there's only one chapter. For as you have drunk on my holy mountains, all the round nations around you shall drink. They shall drink and gulp down and shall be as though they had never been. It's kind of the equivalent of saying, when I get through with you, you'll wish you had never been born. But on Mount Zion there shall be those that escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall take possession of all those who dispossess them. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Is that clear enough? Times... So right here in the midst of destruction, God reminds them, uh, reminds that in the end, uh, his people will not be abandoned and that God himself will vindicate them. And so keep that in mind. There's that sense, even in the midst of exile, that God is still God. I was talking with Pastor Chris, who is uh, a you know, very accomplished uh, Bible scholar and uh, and he said, you know, the funny, I was talking about these passages, he says, you know, the funny thing is in the ancient world, uh, if two countries fought each other, it was believed that as they fought on earth, the gods of those countries were fighting in heaven. And that whatever side won, their god had defeated the other god. 
And so usually when they were defeated, their, their gods would be either, uh, as we saw in the story of the exile, the, the, that uh, where the Babylonian troops actually took items out of the temple. Remember, they took all the gold. They, took all, they didn't take it uh, because, just because they were valuable, though certainly they were. They took them uh, to then put in their temple. The Babylonians had a policy, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later. They had a policy. They would bring those gods in as subsidiary, as servant gods to their god. And so usually what they'd say is if, if your god lost, well, our god must not be as good as your god. But, but Israel refused to play that game. They said, oh, no, don't worry. Our god's still more powerful. He's just mad at us. That's different. Pay attention. Bob says, they were right. They were, weren't they? And so reminds them, and, and have any of you ever been mad at your children? Those of you who are parents, the answer is yes. Um, I'm not even a parent, but I've had parents, and I know the answer is yes. Um, but how many of you mad at your children want to destroy them and cut them off forever? No. And that's the imagery we see here with Yahweh God. And so they're taken into Babylon, and not everyone. I keep that in mind. That's something I didn't realize really until just a few years ago. We tend to think when we hear about it, they took everyone. They didn't take everyone. They just took the leaders. Uh, so we're going to look. There were people in, we're going to look at two places that talks a little bit about exile itself. Uh, the first is the prophet Jeremiah. We talked about Jeremiah uh, last week. Uh, as, as a prophet before the exile, telling him about the exile. But we talked about how Jeremiah was himself involved. He was in some ways very personally involved in the story of, diso of, of exile. And he's taken off to Egypt. But in chapter 29, um, he writes a letter to the elders and the priests and the prophets and the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into Jerusalem from Jer taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We'll talk more about Nebuchadnezzar in a few minutes. He turns out to be quite a character, I promise. Uh, so they take them there and he sends a letter to them. And um, you know what if you were taken into exile, how would what would you how would you behave? Or work we got to get out of this. We're going to leave. But that's not what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Pay attention. Who sent them into exile? God did. God did. He says this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Have you ever built a house before? Would you build a house again? No. <laughs> Just curious. Would you build a house if you were planning to? Would you go through that again? Would you go through that if you were going to leave in a year? No, it's a, it's a hassle. I don't think he's quite talking about dealing with bad contractors. But to build a house and to, you know, for most of you it's said, and I don't know if this is true, for some of you this is true, and for some of you this is not true. Uh, they always talk about your house is your biggest investment. And so if, if you're going to make that kind of investment, that's a sign you're sinking roots, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're planning to leave, you don't. But what is God telling them? He says, he's saying, one, you're not coming home soon. And two, stay there. And what's he going to do when he stays? He says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons and uh, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Interesting little statement there. Uh, you're planning to have grandchildren in this place, which may or may not be good news, right? Multiply there and do not decrease. What we're seeing here is very distinct parallels to Egypt. Did you did you any of you any of you catch that when you read or you catching that now? What happened? Do you remember what happened to the people of Israel when they went to Egypt? What happened? You're, they multiplied. They multiplied, and what happened? There were more of them than there were of us, said the Pharaoh, and then they were enslaved. So what did he say? He says, multiply there and do not decrease. Multiplication in the Bible, having children, is a sign of God's favor in the Bible. I don't mean that as a commentary on people who, who do not have children or are not able to have children. That, that, that's not what I mean, and I, I, I'm careful to say that. Um, but, but 
we take it where it is in the Bible. Uh, the production of children is seen as, as a blessing from God. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now that's really interesting, isn't it? You're going to go there, and God says to make the best of it. God says to seek their welfare, even your enemies. You know, Jesus talks about that too, right? And that if they prosper, so will you. We'll talk more about that in a little while. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they are prosecute, prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. Verse 10, For thus says the Lord, Only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 11, many of you know this. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come to pray with me, pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. See, that's going to be our theme when we talk about exile and return. Our theme tonight is God is in control. God is watching over this. God says, you're in exile. You're in an unfamiliar place. Well, God, I am in control. Every verb, God is the actor. Every verb in the midst of exile. You went into exile because I led you there. You will stay in exile and I will lead you there. And you will return from exile. And guess what? I will lead you then. Past, present, and future. And in fact, Jeremiah talks about that restoration. New covenant. A future is promised. So let's look at a story that has a lot to do with the story of being in exile. And that's the story of Daniel. Many of you I know know Daniel, know the story. You at least know two parts of the story. One, Daniel in the lion's den, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Daniel's a really interesting book to think about interpreting. Daniel is a book that some believe was written uh, in the 6th in the century while they were in exile by a guy named Daniel. And you may, that may be, and, and, uh, and, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to see. There's some evidence that possibly Daniel was written later possibly in the early 2nd century B.C. when there was a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was a really bad guy. This was after the exile. They were back. But Antiochus Epiphanes was a foreign leader, a Greek leader, who had come and had despoiled the temple, had offered pagan sacrifices on their altar, had damaged them and threatened them. And in the midst of that... The story comes of Daniel, and, it, and it's a story uh, not just of exile, but also a story of any time when we may feel that we are not culturally accepted. I don't know if any of you feel like that right about now. So I don't know when it took place, but I think it gives some good lessons. And the primary lesson is that God is in control. See, God, see, what we, we come with, the, the story comes at the beginning of Daniel in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He has uh, besieged Judah. He has dragged off leaders. And he says, uh, bring some of the royal nobility of the Israelites to me, and I will make them into Babylonian nobles. They learned literature and language of the Chaldeans. You see, Babylon's plan was to make all these foreign leaders, they were going to be subsidiaries of them. They were going to assimilate and incorporate, and they tried to do that. And so Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah come. He gives them new names. They get Babylonian names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Four guys. And he says, in fact, you're going to eat the, great, the best food and wine, uh, except it's not exactly kosher. So Daniel says, no, we will eat just vegetables and water. 
Should we have a vegetable and water night here for Wednesday night dinner? No. <laughs> We'd have six people come. You know, have you have you have you always seen there's the uh, 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 there's a book uh, Rick Warren says something called the Daniel Fast. Have you heard of this? Yeah. I yeah I feel like they, I I feel like they they stopped reading at about verse ten because it says. Um, after that, they appeared better and fatter than all the other men, which is not the goal of any diet I've ever been on. Uh, so I don't know what happened. But the point was that even when they should have lost weight, even when they, re by rejecting the, the, what the Babylonians wanted to do to assimilate them, to eliminate their cultural distinctives, uh, God was present and God supplemented them uh, in a way that cannot be explained, that God was in control. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is uh, quite a character. He has a bad dream, and uh, he couldn't sleep, and so he calls all of his uh, religious, quote-unquote, people, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, uh, tell me what, tell me the interpretation. <coughs> Excuse me. And they say, of course, king, you tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. Fair enough, right? He says, No. You tell me the dream I had, and I, and then tell me the interpretation. Like, who can know that? He said, well, "Isn't that your job?" Well, in fact, if you uh, don't tell me what the dream is, I'm going to kill you all and your families, because that's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> Needless to say, they're pretty upset about this, and they say, "We hear about a guy. His name is Daniel. He actually can do this for real. This isn't a show for him." Brings Daniel. And Daniel interprets the dream. And I, I don't normally get into this detail, but it's so good. He says, uh, yeah, king, you saw a statue. The head was gold. The chest and arms were silver. Uh, its middle, its, its abdomen and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And the stone was cut out not by human hands and struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay. And, and the whole thing broke in pieces. And then the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And he says, what happens is you're the head of gold, king. I'm guessing he stopped listening at that point. And then he says, after that, uh, there'll be another one uh, inferior to yours, silver, and third kingdom, bronze. And then a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, just as iron crushes and smashes everything, it shall crush and smash, shatter all these. And the feet of clay and iron will be strengthened, but they will be partly strong and partly brittle. And in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to other people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Do you know something about the history? After Babylon declines, who rises? Do you know? Persia, thank you. Someone read. Medes, Persians, kind of, yeah. Then after the Medes and Persians decline, who rises? Greece. How many kingdoms are we at right now? Paying attention? This is our third. The fourth kingdom comes, and who takes over after the Greeks? Romans. What's the symbol of Rome? As it turns out, one of the symbols is iron, their strength. And in the midst of the Roman Empire, God will set up a kingdom that will never end. How's that? Amazing. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> see, that's why I had to get into that. How's that, right? You see, whether you're like, well, you know, even if you take the position that, that uh, you know, these prophets only tell back, they don't tell the future. And some scholars believe that. I said, Gee, do you, pay attention here. Nobody thinks this was written after the time of Jesus. But yet, somehow, Daniel... Uh, knows and he sees what God will do. And so Daniel stays committed to God, stays connected to God, and God blesses him. And throughout here, what we see is Daniel rises. Um, even then, Nebuchadnezzar decides, I'm going to build a statue. It's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. He sets it up on a plane and says, everyone come out and worship the statue. Turns out Daniel decides that I don't really, I'm not really allowed to worship statues. I'll, I'll pass. Um, or not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, we're going to pass. We don't worship statues. 
and, and, uh, and this says, Nebuchadnezzar got so bad his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace to be heated up so hot that, uh, uh, that uh, the strongest guard, that, that it was so hot that the guards who threw them in, they got burned up just opening the door. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking around in the furnace with a fourth person. Most, most interpreters of the church would say that that person is Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar has a, and then, and then, uh, and then, and then, and then there's a response. He sees us and he said, well, this really must, this God really must be something, but Nebuchadnezzar is who he is. And so he says, any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy as against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limbs and their house laid in ruins. He just can't help himself. I, I don't know what to say. Um, but yet this person, this is not of God, this, this kind of attitude that he has. Please don't take it that way. But yet to show that behind these people who are not of God, God is still at work. That's the whole story of exile and return. Later, Nebuchadnezzar finally uh, has another dream. And it's about a large tree that is cut down. And Daniel says, that's you. Uh, you will eventually go crazy. You will live with animals. You'll eat grass like oxen. You'll be bathed with the dew of heaven. And uh, yeah, that will be you. That will be it until you return. And that's exactly what happens. And uh, his son, Belshazzar, becomes king. Belshazzar is, is, comes near the end of the time of the Babylonians. He sees literally the writing on the wall. And Daniel says, this is God showing you that the time... That, that because of your, uh, that God has numbered the days of your kingdom, brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and give to the Medes and the Persians. And it says that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You see, all these things that happened that are historical events, Daniel reminds them they happened not because of happenstance, not because of military power, but because of God. That even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of difficult times, stay focused on God. That's the, uh, that's the message of Daniel. Daniel also in the last part has several visions. Uh, you'll see visions. They are apocalyptic in nature. Apocalyptic is the unveiling, the foretelling of the future. Uh, it tells a story uh, about uh, uh, Darius sees uh, uh, the, 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 a vision and he sees a, a dream or uh, Daniel, I mean Daniel has a vision and sees the dream, a day of judgment when the Ancient One takes the throne, and then he says, I saw one coming like a son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient One, or the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. This is Daniel 7. Do you see this? Once again, in the midst of exile, in the midst of this, that God is at work. God is telling the future. And we see, looking back, we can see where this goes. Uh, because God is at work. And uh, Daniel 9, I just advise you to uh, Daniel 9. Someone told me the other day, said, we ought to just pray Daniel 9 for ourselves, for our church, for our country. Um, Daniel 9, I advise you to, to do that. Um, you know, where, where they confess their sins. See, there he's coming and he knows that this is the point where Daniel knows that the time of exile is about to come to an end. Daniel was a young man when he left. He was an old man at this point. And he said, and he prays on behalf of his people for their restoration uh, spiritually when they are restored physically. And we'll talk a little bit more. Actually, uh, it's interesting. There's a little, this apocalyptic language in Daniel, if you pay attention to that, it's very actually not dissimilar to what's in Revelation. So we'll talk, I think, a little more when we get to Revelation. We'll come back to Daniel, some of these apocalyptic visions. But I want to turn back a little earlier in the Bible now to the story. So, so, so Darius is on the throne, and then Cyrus is on the throne. And uh, at this point, uh, these, these guys are Medes. They're per Medes Persians. Um, and they have a different uh, religion. They have a different policy of religion than the Babylonians. 
The Babylonians' policy was bring the people, bring the religions all to us and set them up in our temple. Well, the Persians had a different plan, and it was a little more hands-off, a little more um, home rule, they say. And there King Cyrus says in Ezra chapter 1, uh, decides, uh, he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Which isn't literally true, but, you know, whatever. If, if he believes that, that's fine. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judea. Isn't that interesting? Even Cyrus acknowledges that he did this. He didn't say, my God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He says the, the God of Israel has. That's interesting. Once again, we're reminded here at the beginning, God is in control. That God, after the 70 years up, he moves in the heart of the pagan king Cyrus to bring the people back. And he says, any of you who are now among his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem and Judea and build Rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all the survivors, whatever place they reside, be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. Now, to a certain degree, Cyrus doesn't get it. To him, gods need places to live because if they don't, they'll be homeless. Not exactly how the God of Israel works. Um, but the God of Israel uh, is, is to re they are to return. And what we say is, is, is about 50,000, we believe, uh, return. 50,000 return. What that means, because they apparently have multiplied quite nicely in Babylon. But that is not all of them. Uh, we tend to think that they took them all out and they all came back. That's not true. Um, uh, many of them had become wealthy, they had become business owners, they had taken that to heart, and they were doing very well. And so it's kind of like, you know, you've got things going well for you, you can stay here where things are going well, or you can go back to that place where, you know, it's all been burned down and torched and there are a bunch of strangers living there. You can see why a lot of them wouldn't go. And in fact, one thing that's really interesting is that uh, that, that, that after the exile, the, the Jewish people never live in the same, never all live together ever again. Uh, that over time in those uh, the 500 years, between that and the time of Christ, uh, there is what scholars refer to as the Jewish diaspora, and they end up moving into areas all around the Mediterranean. Uh, this comes to the forefront in Acts chapter 2, when the festival of Pentecost comes, and it says devout Jews from every region under heaven were gathered in Jerusalem. See, they don't come back to the same place till Acts chapter 2, and then they are sent out, as, as Jesus commands in Acts chapter 1, to the ends of the earth. And so there is a diaspora, but 50,000 of them return uh, to Jerusalem, which, uh, which really, and then, then Ezra 2 gives the list of names, and I can't pronounce any of them. But the good news, nobody, know, nobody else can either. We don't know how those, we don't know how Hebrews pronounce, so I don't know. Um, we, just, we just don't. Modern Hebrew is not pronounced the same way. And they come and they, they worship in Jerusalem, uh, and they lay the foundation uh, for the temple. And when they do, uh, we see once again a little story, a little blast from the past. Uh, they have is uh, some, some, uh, some, some of their neighbors come and they say, well, we've been living here for the last 70 years. Actually, we've been living here the last 200 years. The king of Assyria brought us here. Do you remember that? Remember when, when the northern kingdom was taken out? He then brought people, his own people in and settled them in and intermarried them. So we've been worshiping your God for the last 200 years. We'll help you. And uh, the people said, uh, you shall have no, this is Ezra 4, you shall have no part with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as the king of Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. This turns out to be kind of a, not an error, but a, a, a little step back because those people turned out to be really mad when they said that. Like, you think you're better than we are. And they're like, yeah, we kind of do. Uh, <laughs> I don't really know what to say. You, you see, this is the root of the disagreement that goes even into Jesus' day, Samaritans and Jews. And so they come back 
Um, and, uh, and, and so these people then write, and they say, they write to one of the little under kings of, uh, of Cyrus and says, uh, you probably should look at your history books. These Jerusalem people, they're rebellious, they're bad people. They're building a fortress, and they will stop paying you your taxes if you do it. And the king looks, and he says, oh, my goodness, these are rebellious people. We need to stop it. They then appeal to Cyrus, who said, or to, 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 uh, to, to, Dar to King Darius, rather, and King Darius says, no, um, we said you can build. We believe that yours, they need to build. And in fact, we're going to give you all the money to build it. And we're going to give you all the materials you need to sacrifice. Might God have been at work there too? God was at work. And there they held the Passover uh, there they held the, the, the Passover, and they dedicated the temple, and, uh, and they were home. Uh, at this point, uh, Ezra returns. They bring Ezra in a little later. He comes in chapter 7. They say he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord of God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. One thing is probably worth mentioning is the time of exile is really formative in the, in the story of Israel, in the story of the people of Israel. Um, it is the time where modern Judaism, as Je it was known in Jesus' day, was formed. See, I think when they went there, they had learned, they realized, you know, God was mad at us. We had disobeyed Torah. And so the people of God gave themselves to the study of the law. And so whereas, whereas, whereas the story of Israel before the exile was rooted in temple and kingship, the story afterward is rooted in temple and Torah, temple and law. And so Ezra is one of those who comes, and he is a student of the law, and he comes and he looks at them, and he, and he, and he tells them uh, where uh, they are disobeying the law. And in this case, it was uh, that, they, that these people of Israel, they are God's own possession, they are God's own people, but they have intermarried with others. And so the people say, we will, uh, we will, we will reject our, our foreign wives. And I, I struggle with that. That seems like a... a uh, and, and so like all together, they all together went and they rejected their foreign wives, sending them away with their children. And that is, it's brutal. It's, it's, it, yeah, I know, you know, I don't know. Did they send him some of the money they kept, they held back from Darius? I don't know. And it was, uh, it's really challenging. I just, I don't, you know, I, I wish I could give you like a way around that. Certainly, God commands them not to intermarry, not to be like the other countries, but it seems tough. I don't really have much more to say about Ezra, but to go on to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, is uh, he comes later, and he is one to rebuild the walls. Walls are a sign of security. Uh, walls are a, a, a sign of, uh, uh, of independence. Because part of the reason that that it took so long for the great Babylonian army. I mean, it took them from 605, the first deportation, to 587, 586. Uh, what's that? That's uh, 18, 19 years. And why? Because of the wall. And so they decided to build the wall, a sign of independence. Um, and uh, needless to say, this is also uh, opposed. This is also opposed. But once again, we see the story that God is at work. And God... Uh, God comes to um, to help them rebuild the wall. God comes to help them rebuild the wall. They once again celebrate festivals, and they once again make a covenant with God. God is at work, and once again we hear the story of the mixed, the foreign marriages. Saying, "Didn't isn't this the reason that Solomon disobeyed?" So amidst this return, this uh, resetting up of their country, this, this reclamation of national purpose. And what's the national purpose? Have we gotten a little away from What's the national purpose of Israel? You remember? To worship God. 
What else? To keep his covenant. What else? To be a light to the nations. That's the secret. The story of the Old Testament is Israel is called to be a light to the nations. And so they are restored to that. That, that God does, God's, God's plan for Israel is not just for Israel, it's for the world. You see, when God gave them the law, we said, well, that's quite a burden God gave them. Well, it, it, no. What God gave them was, was to know his will. How many of us, you know, we, we just want to know God's will. And the blessing God gave Israel was they could know his will. And then they could share his will with the world. They could embody his will for the world. And so when we see this return, this recommitment, it is a recommitment to embodying the will of God among their neighbors. So in the... In the when intermarry, when they went to Babylon and right. intermarried, that was to spread the faith? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I thought about that. You know, is he saying marry the first person you find or marry within? I think, I think, I tend to think it's marry within the colony. Okay. That, that's my, but, but don't take it as, because it doesn't say. Um, because, uh, but what we see though in the story of Daniel is this distinct set that even within exile, they are to remain distinctive. And we see that, that they really take that distinctiveness seriously during exile. And it's the formation of what is later called Second Temple Judaism. Why is it called Second Temple Judaism? Be because they had a second temple. Yes. Yeah, it's very creative. Nobody said these scholars were creative people. Um, but there you go. You, at least you'll remember it. Um, so there are two... Um, there are two... Uh, prophets that also speak into this time. Their name are Haggai and Zechariah. And they kind of work together. They're kind of two volumes set. Uh, so they, uh, they return. And Haggai goes. And uh, he goes and he tells the people uh, that, uh, when, that when 50,000 return... Uh, it's interesting that 50,000 return. There's, this is not, it's like, we, there's this parallel with Exodus, but, but they just go there. <laughs> there's no story about them wandering. They just go there this time. And uh, they say, uh, when they come, they're creating sacrifice, but they have not yet built the temple. And he's saying, God is not accepting your sacrifices because you have spent all your time building your own houses rather than, um, rather than building God's house. And so uh, it calls the people to build a house. And, and the first group comes with Sheshbazar. He is the son of Jehoiakim, the last uh, Davidic king of Judah. And there, he's named the governor. And then another wave under Zerubbabel, who ends up being a really bigger figure. And he is the grandson of Jehoiakim and the nephew of Sheshbazar. And they come and under him they rebuild under Joshua, the high priest. They reinstate uh, they reinstate uh, they reinstate sacrifices, uh, and then they rebuild it. And when they rebuild it, um, the people they rebuild it. The people cry, uh, not just because they rebuilt it, but they remember how glorious the first temple was, and how simple and unglorious this temple is. But Haggai reminds them that God will fill the place, that God will give it its splendor, and that over time the peoples of the world will bring great glory and it will be even more splendid than the first. And it's interesting because later in time under Herod, the temple is expanded and by the time of Jesus, the temple is larger and grander than it ever was before. To God, uh, God was at work. And so Zechariah uh, speaks, in this same, uh, speaks in this same sense, encouraging them to recommit themselves to God's purposes. And, uh, he, and, and says with Haggai that rebuilding the temple is a prerequisite to receiving God's blessings, uh, not spending it on themselves, but spending it on God. Uh, Zechariah also has several of those um, 
apocalyptic images, those visions that kind of remind us of the book of Revelation, once again placing this return within the story of a God who is working and is at work to restore and redeem all creation back together. And, uh, and, and that a day is coming. That's kind of the theme. A day is coming that God will provide, God will heal, and God will save. I want to talk about two more books quickly. One, the book of Esther. The book of Esther is really interesting. Uh, I know many of you like the story of Esther. Esther takes place at a later time in Persia. Uh, Esther is the story of, uh, th- that, and that's a story of people who stayed behind. Uh, Esther is kind of famous because it's the one book of the Bible, right, where God is never explicitly mentioned. But, once again, in keeping with the theme, the post-exilic theme, God's hand is at work. What's the famous line in Esther? Where Esther's, uh, um, I'm speaking faster than my head's head's spinning. Where Esther is told, uh, what? Who, yeah, who knows that maybe you have come to this for such a time as this. You've heard that line. Esther is involved. Uh, the, the king, he has, uh, his wife has kind of publicly embarrassed him. And so he gets rid of her and decides to have a beauty contest for a new queen. Dun, dun, dun. Brian Seacrest comes and hosts. <laughs> I don't, I didn't eat. I haven't eaten. I haven't slept much the last couple of days. But so, so, so it is a. So they create like you know, uh, Persia's next top model queen, um, and and it is. I mean, it really is. It's kind of like embarrassing. Uh, it, it's exploitative in a way that, uh, but but yet through that process, which is not of God, uh, Esther is chosen. See, God is working behind the scenes. Meanwhile, a guy named Haman has decided that uh, he hates Mordecai, and so all the Jews got to go. And so he decides to convince the king, if they don't worship you, we'll kill him, right? King's like, that sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> don't these kings, they all love being worshipped, don't they? And, and, when, and all you have to do to get them to dislike God's people is to say, what do you think about those people who don't worship you? Off with their heads. Like the queen of hearts. But, but what happens here is that Esther then takes a chance because the last time a queen barged in and talked to the king, it ended badly. And comes in and it, she makes the promise. She, she asks him if he will spare her people. And he does. And then the story ends at Haman. And then Haman builds this comically enormous gallows. It's just a weird story. This comically enormous gallows. And in the end, Haman gets hung. It's hanged on it. See, God's at work reserving his people. Then the last book of the Old Testament. This isn't as entertaining, but it's really important. This is probably the last book. It's the last book written. Uh, It's the last book in the canon. It may have been the last book written. Some suspect Daniel may have been the last book written. But Malachi is written. The temple has been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. And here in this time, this time of Second Temple, uh, he reminds, once again, we see, once again, Edom returns at the very beginning of Malachi chapter 1 and says that, you know, God says, I have preferred you to Edom. I have loved you. Uh, will you continue to come back to me? And we would like to say that in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, that the people were turning the right way, and they're always doing the right thing, but once again we see problems are coming. Once again, that story of God's provision, people's disobedience, God provides, people disobey, it continues. It's part of the human uh, story. It's, it's your story and my story. You know, we, we're really on fire for God one day, then we go disobey the next. And that's what happens here. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, they, they're back to sacrificing, but they decide, you know, well, we'll just burn up the sick and the weak animals, and then the good ones that are expensive, we'll, we'll keep for me, right? He says, no, that's not how it 
works. Tells the priest, I'm going to curse you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. Uh, you have, uh, you have uh, been faithless to your marriage covenant. You've been faithless to the covenant that I've made with you. Uh, you, uh, you look around and you see a world in which evil people are prospering. And you say, hey, guess what? It doesn't matter. We can do evil things. God does not notice. God says, I notice. And they rob God, it says. They hold back their tithes and offerings. It says, you have said it is vain to serve God. What do we profit by keeping his commander go about as mourners before the Lord of hosts? Now we count the arrogant happy. Evildoers not only prosper, but when they put God to the test, they escape. 3.16, then those who revered the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord took note and listened, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who revered the Lord and thought on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my special possession on the day when I act. And I will spare them as parents spare their children who serve them. Then once more you shall see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. First chapter 4, see the day is coming, burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, that day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so it shall leave neither root nor branch. You see, the evildoers God will judge. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will become ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances I commanded to him at Horeb for all Israel. Once again, we see the emphasis on studying the law and obeying the law that's, that, that we find in Second Temple after the exile Judaism. Five, lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. By the way, who's the second? Do you know anyone know who's the second Elijah? John the Baptist. Very good. Before the day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, so I will not come and strike the land with a curse. See, the Old Testament ends preparing us the way, reminding us that, that as people, um, we are, are uh, that we are people who uh, come and go, but, but God is faithful. God is at work. And even in the midst of disobedience, even in the midst of other things, God is at work, but that God in time is going to act he is going to act by sending a savior. He's going to act uh, by turning, by giving us a, a new heart, and by changing us, by actually changing us uh, from the inside out. And then next week uh, we'll begin that. How does God provide? How does God give us a savior? How does God change our hearts? Uh, and His name is Jesus.